0: Is there a speaker in the house? Texas lawmakers rally round a replacement for Joe Strauss and introduce a raft of new potential laws. The story today on the Texas Standard.
1: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio with supports from Rand Group. Software delivered as promised, no surprises.
0: I'm David Brown, more than 400 bills already proposed to kick off the 2019 legislative session. We'll hear about the big ones. Helen Keller and Hillary Clinton out of the classroom? Proposed new standards for Texas public school history classes will tell you about them. Also, historian H.W. Brands on why the generation after the founding fathers matters today. And remembering Stan Lee, the passing of a hero maker hits home for a Texas writer. That's all ahead on The Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard time on this 13th day of November 2018. I'm David Brown. Wait a minute. Did I say November 13th? Well, let's see that. That makes it one, two, three, 56 days before the start of the next Texas legislative session. And yet let the record show it's already underway in a sense. Not only did yesterday mark the first day for Texas lawmakers to begin filing bills for consideration, it was also the official beginning of sorts in an elaborate changing of the guard in the Texas House of Representatives. Joe Strauss, the outgoing speaker who announced at the end of the last session that he would not run, was a Republican who long held a line against more rigidly social conservatives in the Senate, led by one Dan Patrick, the Texas lieutenant governor. And now we are getting a pretty good sense of where Strauss' replacement might come from, as Texas representatives appear to be coalescing around one name in particular. Joining us to talk about all this drama and what happens next... KUT Senior Editor Ben Philpot. Ben, welcome back to the Texas Standard Studios. Hello. And Texas Tribune's Alex Samuels, who is joining us uh, as well. Alex, uh, welcome to Texas Standard.
2: Happy to be here.
0: So let's begin with this speaker's race before we get to this raft of bills. Alex, uh, turn to you first. What's the play-by-play of how Dennis Bonin became the top choice to replace Strauss? And for those who don't know, who is Dennis Bonin?
2: So Dennis Bonin is a 46-year-old Republican from Angleton, Texas, who spent almost half of his life in the Texas House. Uh, He was a top ally of Strauss uh, and emerged over the past decade as one of the lower chamber's most outspoken members. He would go to bat for the House over high-profile issues like property tax reform and border security. I guess uh, one could say the ball kind of started rolling for Bonin uh, in October. Uh-huh. A group of 40 or so Republicans met behind closed doors because the issue at hand was that there were six candidates already in the field to replace Strauss, but none had emerged as the clear frontrunner. And in these Republicans' eyes, Dennis Bonin kind of fit the bill as who could be the next successor for Strauss.
0: But wait a minute. I mean, Ben, I want to bring you in here yeah. because— uh there were a lot of Democrats added to this uh, august body during the uh, uh, midterm elections, and they wanted a, a seat at the table in making a selection for House Speaker. Is this a done deal? Or are they going to get to weigh in here, or is it all about Republicans coalescing around Dennis Bonnet?
3: Well, you know, when when uh, Bonin said on Monday that that the race was over and that he had won, he said, I've got 109 names so far that are supporting me. And you look down that list, there are Democrats on that list, huh. prominent Democrats within uh, the Texas House. And so I think, you know, this was supposed to be a race where the Republican caucus made its choice first and said, this is the only Republican we're going to support. Now, this was something that a group of much more conservative Republicans thought would be a good way of keeping those rhinos out of the speaker's chair. That's Republicans a name only, uh-huh. which they thought Speaker Strauss was. Um, But, you know, in Bonin's announcement yesterday, he even kind of seemed to circumvent that a little bit because he announced, hey, here I am. And here are a bunch of Democrats who are going to support me. And now I've got the majority. So there you go.
0: He seems to be just uh, grabbing the ring here. Uh, Alex, uh, do you see any threat to Bonin's claim? uh, I mean, from from what you've been gathering?
2: Um, as of now, no. It seems uh, pretty much like Bonin has the votes. 109, as Ben said, out of the 150 members in the chamber, that's well above the 76 votes needed to become the next speaker of the Texas House, uh, both Travis Clardy and Drew Darby, they were the last two Republicans to officially end their speaker bids after Bonin announced he had this list of 109 members and both said, you know, I've already sent Bonin a congratulatory message and seem to acknowledge that Hmm. Bonin is in a position um, to secede Strauss.
0: All right. Well, at this point, I think I need each of you to reach into your pockets and pull out your crystal balls because we (laughs) are about to try to figure out how this might play out in the upcoming legislative session. We take into let's if we can take into account some of the uh, proposals that have already been filed. Take into account the fact that you have the uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick back in the saddle. Um, how do you see this upcoming legislative session playing out, Ben? Uh, let's start with you. Well, I think,
3: you know, Bonin in the very short press conference that he had yesterday, uh, talked a lot about the family of the House and wanting to keep the House together, wanting the House to, you know, think through the ideas that are important to Texas, specifically saying school finance, that's it, we are going to finally do something about it during this upcoming legislative session. I think that, you know, he understands that that Republicans, of course, lost you know twelve seats in the House, and he understands that you know while it's not 50-50, it's getting closer than it has been. You mean and in terms of the partisan? In terms of the partisan split, yes, yeah. and and that this was a election that saw the suburbs you know leaving Republicans and going to Democrats, and I think it's going to be a session that focuses on those issues that the suburban Texans have been worried about, especially school finance, that could be a way for uh, not only to help the state, but mm-hmm. to, you know, maybe bring some Republicans back into
0: the fold. But ball. let's zoom in on some of the particulars. It's my understanding that one of the bills uh, would override Austin's new ordinance, controversial ordinance, certainly among business owners, uh, to provide employees sick leave pay. So what do we make of that, and how does that uh, something like that fare in a bonin led house you know i think that's kind of a wild card i mean i think
3: the quick answer might be it's in the courts and the uh former speaker joe strauss has always said well this is playing out in the courts why should the house bother with it and so Bonin could certainly take that line but Bonin could also say you know i could see him in based on previous votes and, and things that he has supported saying, yeah, this is not something that cities should be doing. Um, but I think that the first one might be closer. You know, it's in the courts. Let the courts play it out.
0: Ale- Alex, how do you see it? And maybe uh, what what other uh, bits of uh, legislation would you focus on? I mean, given that uh, I believe it's some, more than 400 bills have already been filed now.
2: In regards to the speaker's race, something that's obviously going to be a big thing next year is property tax relief. Um, I know Bonin was a big cheerleader in the House and the main one pushing the property tax legislation, which was often at odds with the proposal that the Senate was pushing forward. So I'm kind of interested to see how that dynamic will play out next year.
0: Yeah, especially if we're talking about school finance reform, and he's wanting to put caps on property tax? Well, I you know, there
3: is one of, uh, one of the leading Republicans in the Texas House also has to just make it, you know, muddle it even more, has a uh, constitutional amendment proposal that he's filed already, which would say the state must pay for 50 percent of how much it costs to pay for public schools in the state well that's something that if passed um the 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 belief is that would lower property taxes at the local level because those local ISDs would not have to collect as much tax. And, of course, the school tax is the largest part of your property tax.
0: Bill. Yeah, but where's that revenue going to come from to, to, I mean, to pay for, I mean, that's, yeah, a, that that's, is, a,
3: that's a pretty big commitment. That's the billion-dollar question.
0: <laughs> yeah, multi-billion-dollar question if you're talking about several years. Uh, Alex, what, what stands out to you in terms of these, uh, these bills that uh, have been filed?
2: Well, I'm focused primarily, um, I'm big on the marijuana legislation. So, of course, Joe Moody, again, filed his measure that would make it a civil offense and not a crime to Mm -hmm. be caught with less than an ounce of marijuana. And that was one of several bills filed yesterday about loosening marijuana laws in Texas. What's interesting to me is that while this bill has been filed in in prior sessions, it now has a bit more momentum because both Uh, Republicans and Democrats in their respective platforms this year said they were in favor of this uh, legislation. So I'm kind of interested to see where that goes.
0: Typically, the higher numbered bills are the ones that seem to get the most attention as the the, uh, session moves forward. Uh, I'm wondering about some of those higher numbered bills and if a bathroom bill might uh, be making another appearance.
3: Uh, Well, I'll admit that I did not triple check this morning, but I've not seen anything like that so far. However, Talking about those higher-numbered bills, uh, the speaker and the lieutenant governor both reserve. Uh, I think it's 30 on the Senate side, 21 to 20 on the House side. Uh, so you, you know, right now in the House, the first bill filed is number 21. So if there is a bathroom bill out there, and of course uh, l- the lieutenant governor Dan Patrick has been more interested in passing mm-hmm. it, um, it would not surprise me if it somewhere somehow falls in that first 30, which will get those uh, either closer to the session or once the session is started.
0: Less than a minute. Left. But do you see this as another battle between social conservatives and uh, uh, moderates in the House? I mean, is that the way that this is, is shaping up uh, for the next legislative session?
3: I think it certainly could be, again, Dennis Bonin, um, while his own person, different from Strauss, he absolutely has not been a fan of the Freedom Caucus, the much more conservative wing of the Republicans in the Texas House, and has then not been a huge fan of the lieutenant governor. Uh, in some of these issues. So it, it absolutely could come down to the same way we've seen in the last couple of sessions. Alex, your take?
4: Um,
2: I would have to agree there. Um, what I think was interesting is that after Bonin made his announcement, both Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick came out and congratulated Bonin, both said that they were looking forward to building a close partnership with him moving forward. So I'll be interested to see what their relationship between the big three is like next year. And I think that will focus a lot to whether there's sort of that tension that what that there was last year with Strauss was speaker
0: the 86th session of the Texas legislature gets underway on January 8th 2019 formally speaking kut senior editor ben philpot and texas tribune's alex samuels will certainly be covering it let the games begin thank you both for talking with us on the texas standard
3: thank you
2: thank you
0: In for social media editor Wells Dunbar, Eric Austin, managing editor at KERA News, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area, monitoring the talk of Texas on this
4: Tuesday. How you doing there, Eric? I'm good. Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area, wow, that's pretty... You uh, like that? Fancy. Um, You know, you spent the last several minutes talking about bills, bills, and more bills. Uh As you said, 400 bills, more than 400 filed as of just noon yesterday, according to the Texas Tribune. Um, And of course, you couldn't get to them all. Uh, But one that's getting a lot of chatter on Twitter uh, would be about daylight saving time and uh, a desire to end this thing. Hmm. End this thing of daylight saving time as we know it. Uh, Representative Lyle Larson, uh, I believe Republican in the San Antonio area, um, filed House Bill 49. And it's actually a very it's just a few paragraphs uh-huh. um and it would end daylight saving time for both the central time zone but also the mountain time zone we Can't oh. forget our el paso friends bring us all together finally uh i guess in a <laughs> sense exactly unite us don teague on twitter says fellow texans please demand your legislator vote to end daylight saving time Kathy Edelman, though, on the grammar beat, says pet peeve: it's daylight saving time, uh-huh. no "s" on the end. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm still recovering from the time change. It's been a week. Yes, but I'm still absolutely. getting used to it. Yeah. We'll talk more about uh, bills later on in the show. Yeah, also, like, some big news about Amazon. Oh
0: uh, well, we got to go there too. But I like this uh, Texas Standard Time notion. Yeah, it sounds really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> the David uh, Brown bill. <laughs> he's going to be back in 35. Folks, stay with us.
1: Support for a Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology. With a reminder that November is Lung. Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen including a healthy diet and exercise can help prevent lung cancer. More at texasoncology.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver business-by-design supply chain solutions for cost transparency and process integration in mid-market companies. More at SoftwareasPromised.com.
0: Hey, hey, it's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. Back in September, you may recall that the State Board of Education made national headlines with a proposal to remove Hillary Clinton and Helen Keller from state standards for public school social studies classes. Well, this week, the board is back in session for a second and final reading of those standards. What would change and what would stay the same? Texas Public Radio's Camille Phillips wanted to find out.
5: Officially, the curriculum is being streamlined, not revised. The board asked work groups to remove redundancies and unnecessary details in order to give teachers more flexibility. Hillary Clinton was removed from a list of suggested political and social leaders. Helen Keller was removed from a list of examples of good citizenship. But Democratic board member Marisa Perez-Diaz says Keller and Clinton are important figures to teach. She plans to introduce amendments to keep them in. In September, board members approved a significant change to the way the Civil War is taught in Texas. Right now, the standards say sectionalism, states' rights, and slavery all caused the Civil War. The proposed standards would list the expansion of slavery as the primary cause. Perez-Diaz says she wants to make sure that change stays in the final standards.
2: When we're talking about history, we've got to include the good, bad, the ugly, because we can't sugarcoat what has taken place in our history. We We are where we are today as a result of the experiences that we've had as a country.
5: The board also needs to decide whether to keep a controversial line in the high school world history curriculum. It asks students to, quote, "...explain how the Arab rejection of the state of Israel has led to ongoing conflict." David Fisher teaches history at UT Rio Grande Valley and was part of a work group that suggested asking students to instead explain the, quote, creation of the state of Israel and the Arab-Israeli conflict. He says he finds the current language problematic because it lacks nuance and promotes a point of view.
6: It actually
3: tells the student what to think rather than suggesting that the students study a problem and learn the facts about the problem.
5: The board is expected to spend most of today discussing the social studies standards. A final vote is scheduled for Friday. In San Antonio, I'm Camille Phillips.
1: Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at worksafetexas.com.
0: And you're listening to the Texas Standard. Everyone needs a hero. And for many, Stan Lee wasn't just a maker of heroes. He was, in his own way, one of them. When Stan Lee joined Marvel Comics, his company was in a losing battle against the giant that brought the world Batman, Superman, and other heroes seemingly chiseled out of stone, larger than life figures without flaws. But as Marvel Comics was on the brink of going under, Stan Lee took over and made a new universe of heroes, with superpowers, sure, but also vulnerable, flawed, and all too human. Readers could at last see heroic versions of themselves in the comics. And that was a revolution, not just in comics, but in some sense in the way many of us grew up seeing ourselves, human but heroic too. And as comic book fans grieve the world over, this really hits home for Evan Narsis. He is the Austin-based writer of the Rise of the Black Panther comics. He wrote about Lee's death for io9, and he's been sharing his personal thoughts on Twitter as well. Evan, thanks so much for stopping by the Texas Standard Studios today.
7: Thanks for having me. You're not
0: alone, obviously, in taking Stan Lee's death very hard and and personally, but this is obviously especially
7: personal for you. Yeah, you know, I mean, I grew up reading comics, and... Stanley's influence and his presence didn't stop at just comics, you know, in the 1980s when I was a, a younger man, um we watched Spider-Man and the Amazing Friends, and that was an animated series where Stanley would narrate every episode. And you know, you got to use used to hearing his voice and he'd show up everywhere. He's been in video games, he's been in the movies obviously, on TV. It's funny when we think about the characters that Stan Lee created, um Stanley Lieber, his his birth name he created Stan Lee. Stan Lee himself is a character. You know, he's mm-hmm. uh, the creator as something larger than life. And I think that's why um, his passing has been so impactful for people.
0: Let's talk about some of those characters he created. You mentioned Spider-Man, of course. Uh, and we should say co-created because yes. he worked with a, with a variety of people over the years. Name some others that uh, people may have heard or perhaps some um, they might
7: not have. Iron Man, of course, The Hulk, Fantastic Four. Most of the major uh, Marvel characters that are on screen nowadays, Stan Lee had a, a hand in. Black Panther, obviously, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby co-created in Fantastic Four. And, you know, and all his characters have this really um, compelling sense of humanity at their core. You know, like even somebody like Reed Richards, who's like the super genius father figure of the Fantastic Four. He's forgetful. He gets obsessed. In, you know, he, he can figure out any equation, any universal cosmic problem, but he'll forget to feed the kids or something like that. And he and his wife would argue about it. Uh, stuff like that would make the character really familiar and really a human feeling.
0: You know, it's interesting. You uh, mentioned that um, you grew up hearing Stanley's voice. And, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners uh, may have experienced the same thing. Uh, waking up uh, yesterday and, and realizing that that voice in your head is gone.
7: Yeah. I mean, that must be really powerful. It's, you know, it's... One of the stories I was thinking about yesterday was um, I just finished playing the LEGO Marvel Super Heroes 2 game with my daughter. Um, Really the first kind of video game she played through all... uh, To completion, and she was so psyched about it. And one of the things that they have in every level... Is Stan Lee is trapped. Some somehow he got stuck or 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 trapped or captured by uh, bad guys, and you have to free him in every level. And she always wanted to do it. We didn't even always do it, but when we did, she felt so happy. We saved Stan Lee, we saved Stan Lee. <laughs> um You had to tell her. Yeah, and I had to tell her this morning that 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 he passed away. Um, you know, she asked me how old he was. I said he was 95. She's only seven years old, but she commented, well, you know, she she understood that it was a full life. She told me she said he did a lot of stuff. And, I, and you know, Stan Lee did a lot of stuff. He did more stuff and kept on doing stuff way past the time that most people would have, you know, had a, a happy, peaceful retirement.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting that Stan Lee, in his own way, as you were talking earlier, became a kind of... It wasn't just a character behind the scenes. He would make appearances in the comics himself and in, yeah. certainly in the Marvel films. But there's another uh, aspect of this, and that is that as we lionize Stan Lee, I, I I wonder what he would think of that because he too was a flawed person.
7: Yeah, you know, uh, one of the anecdotes I, I tweeted about yesterday comes from another writer, Matt Fraction, who's a comic book writer. And um, he used to write a column uh, for a comic book website called Comic Book Resources. And he, he, there was a secondhand anecdote he talked about where a friend of his found an old children's book that Stanley had worked on before he was Stan Lee, back when he was still Stanley Lieber, And he he brings the book to a signing and Stanley says very, you know, gently, can I look at this? And he opens it up. He doesn't want to damage the book. Clearly, like, it's an artifact, something personal for him. And, you know, he took his glasses, those famous sunglasses, he took them off so he could see it better. And um, he says, thank you for sharing this with me. And then he puts the glasses back on. He's back to being like the showman, the, the carnival barker. And, you know, there are layers to the man that I think... The constant salesmanship probably did a disservice to you know. A lot of people think about him as like this grandiose grandfather of of pop culture, and he was. But you know, I think he had feet of clay, just like the characters that he himself uh, co-created. You know, so it's 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 something to think about uh, how complex and complicated he was privately in ways that we'll, we we don't really know. Evan
0: Narciss is an Austin-based journalist and. Writer of The Rise of the Black Panther
7: comics. Evan, excelsior. Excelsior, David. Thank you.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publisher of W.F. Strong's Stories from Texas. Some of them are true. At independent booksellers like River Oaks, The Twig, and Book People, as well as Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and Bucky's.
8: From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Texas won't be home to Amazon's HQ2. The company officially announced today what's already been widely reported. It's splitting HQ2 into new outposts in Northern Virginia and New York City. Both Austin and Dallas have made the shortlist for Amazon's second headquarters at the beginning of this year. Amazon's decision to divide the HQ2 site into two offices makes some think this may not be the end of expansion for the company. Richard Florida is an economist and professor at the University of Toronto. He says Amazon has used the HQ2 contest to crowdsource data on all the finalist cities.
7: So I think we could see more. A Latin American headquarters in Miami, a big research hub in Austin or Boston, an artificial intelligence or self-driving truck center in Pittsburgh.
8: Thanks in part to its acquisition of Whole Foods last year, Amazon is already the sixth largest private employer in Austin without HQ2. More than 200 Texas firefighters are expected to arrive in California tonight to help the state confront devastating blazes. What's been dubbed the campfire in Northern California has now become the deadliest in state history, claiming at least 42 lives. The Woolsey Fire near Los Angeles has left at least two people dead. That's where personnel from Texas are expected to focus their efforts. The Texas Intrastate Fire Mutual Aid System, or TIFMIS, is organizing this deployment. Their state coordinator is Chief. Chief Keith Kiplinger of Nacogdoches. He explains how TIFMIS started.
6: Several years ago, the state established the Texas Intrastate Fire Mutual Aid System as a means for us to provide mutual aid between fire departments across Texas.
8: Chief Kiplinger says TIFMIS had never sent people to fight fires outside of Texas until this past August.
6: This year, for the first time, uh, California reached out for help with the Carr Fire in Northern California. And Texas was able to send 25 engines and about 97 firefighters to assist them at that time.
8: He says a number of the firefighters now heading to California fought the car fire this summer, but many didn't.
6: And so this provides an excellent opportunity for them to go to California and bring that experience back to Texas, to their hometown, where they can actually provide a higher level of service to the citizens that we serve every day.
8: Chief Kiplinger says all costs associated with sending firefighters out of state will be reimbursed by California. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is the new chairman of the Republican Attorneys General Association. The goal of the group is to elect Republicans to the office of state attorney general. More than half of the attorneys general in the country are members of the GOP. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogle for the Texas Standard.
1: Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Texas Nurse Practitioners. Celebrating National NP Week, November 11th to 17th, Texas is home to over 21,000 nurse practitioners, providing high-quality care to Texans every day. Information at texasnp.org.
0: Thirty-three minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. In ecological terms, South Texas is known as brush country. It's home to lots of thorny shrubs, trees, and palms. Its humid climate makes it similar to parts of northern Mexico, and it's only in these two places where you can find one species of the cacti family, which has been uh, prickly, to say the least. There's a small spineless cactus native to the Rio Grande Valley called peyote, which contains a psychoactive substance known as mescaline. It's been used as religious sacrament in ceremonies by native cultures for centuries, and every state has outlawed its use except for one, Texas. It's a stark contrast when compared to the state's position on, say, changing attitudes toward a substance like marijuana. But lest you think Texas is permissive when it comes to peyote, Alvaro Cespedes offers this reality check.
9: Peyote sellers are required to register with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration first and then with the Texas Department of Public Safety. They must report how much peyote they harvest from the wild and renew their license every year. Right now, there are only four licensed peyote distributors in Texas. One of them is Salvador Johnson.
10: I'll be 72 in about three weeks. But I still, I still harvest field, so... Still, still going strong.
9: <laughs> <laughs> still very young, so... Johnson lives in Miranda City. It's a town of less than 200 people about 35 miles east of Laredo. He's lived there pretty much all his life. After graduating from high school in 1966, Johnson joined the Air Force and was deployed to Vietnam. When he came back home, he followed in his father's footsteps. He sold peyote
10: for about 18 years. I came out, got here, and and I applied for my license, and
9: uh, I started selling peyote. I've been doing it ever since. But distributors like Salvador Johnson are only allowed to sell peyote to registered members of one religious organization called the Native American Church. To buy it, church members must also prove their ancestry. The most important document for a person to have in a town
10: is what we call your certificate of Indian blood, because that will show you who you are, who your parents are, and your blood quantum. You have to be at least one fourth Indian to purchase peyote in the state of Texas, or possess peyote in the state of
9: Texas. Folks who meet these requirements drive to the valley from every corner of the United States to buy peyote, or as church members call it, the medicine.
10: It's a a symbolic representation of God.
9: James Flaming Eagle Mooney has known Salvador Johnson for decades. He is the former leader of the Oglava branch of the Native American church.
10: Uh, This religion could never keep on without this peyote.
9: Peyote is a small round cactus. It has no thorns, but has unique properties which makes it an especially resilient species. If you cut what's called a button, which is used in ceremonies, the root has the ability to slowly regrow. But wild peyote has still been on the decline. The International Union for Conservation of Nature says there has been a 30% decline over the last 20 years.
6: We are over-harvesting the shrinking area of the planet that actually supports wild peyote.
9: Martin Terry is a professor of botany at Sul Ross State University in Alpine. He's been studying peyote for three decades. He says over-harvesting is happening because Texas does not allow for peyote cultivation. And what is the justification behind this? Why why can't it be uh, cultivated? That's a very good question.
6: If, if you happen to be talking to any Texas legislators in the near future, ask them that question.
9: <laughs> <laughs> but Terry says this attitude towards peyote is nothing new.
6: Since the Spaniards set foot on these shores, there has been persecution of people who used peyote. And that continues right up to you know, the Drug Enforcement Administration
9: of today. Native American church members like James Mooney say these laws have been used as a way to persecute their people.
10: People need to understand that law was not just to do with peyote. It had to do with peyote in the sense that that was a sacrament that the indigenous people of North and South America had used continuously from before uh, record of history.
9: The DEA lists peyote as a Schedule 1 control drug, on the same level as heroin or LSD. But distributors, users, and experts like Professor Martin Terry say it causes no real harm to the human body.
6: People using peyote in a ceremonial sense and and, and you know using it, let's say, once a month or so, it, which is about how the the ceremonies are, are spaced out in, in reality. Um, if it's used properly, the way that it's always been used ceremonially, peyote is absolutely safe.
9: Peyote distributor Salvador Johnson traces his own roots to the Mexican state of San Luis Potosí, where peyote grows and is used. He sees selling it as something of a family tradition. He took over after his father, and he hopes it will continue after him. And yes,
10: uh, este, either one of my daughters, uh, my son, my grandsons, one of them more than likely will pick, pick out the business that I have. But it's something that, uh, that uh, you have to come from you and your heart.
9: From Mirando City, I'm Álvaro Céspedes for the Texas Standard.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you.
0: This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. If American politics had its rock stars, one might imagine Washington, Adams, and Jefferson as the Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and Elvis of their time household names still invoked in arguments over authenticity and meaning. Consider how often the names of the nation's founding fathers are repeatedly uttered in our debates over everything from the Constitution to the direction of America itself. There are problems with this habit, to be sure, one of them perhaps the notion that the founders had a fixed idea of what America was meant to be, or what it would become. Even they didn't agree much of the time. And the nature of that disagreement becomes increasingly evident if we consider what the second generation of American giants fought over. They are names seldom mentioned in modern political conversation, but their battles certainly echo today. So writes New York Times bestselling author H. W. Brands. He is a University of Texas history professor. And his latest book is titled Heirs of the Founders: The Epic Rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster. Professor Brands, what made these three so interesting to you?
11: I previously wrote a biography of Benjamin Franklin, and
0: literally the last
11: line of that book is a statement that Franklin made upon coming out of the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Mm-hmm. The here the convention had been held in secret and so the residents of Philadelphia didn't know what was going on and and a woman of Philadelphia approached Franklin on the street and said Dr. Franklin what have you given us? and he said a republic madam if you can keep it so this was both the gift and the charge of the first generation of American statesmen we've created this republic now it's up to you the next generation can you keep it? but I've also noticed that in the literature on American history there is a lot of stuff written on the revolutionary era and there's another ton of stuff written on the civil war but there's kind of a kind of a black hole between mm-hmm. those two and I wanted to fill that in i teach american history i've been teaching american history for 3 decades and over the years i've concluded that in some ways it's the periods of peace that are more challenging and more interesting mm-hmm. for political systems than the periods of war because in war Basically, if you disagree with someone, you can beat them over the head until they submit and, and you <laughs> right, win. Right, right. And so the Americans never really won their argument right. against the British. They just defeated them in war. And if you jump to the Civil War, the North didn't persuade the South. It right. coerced the South. But it's those times of peace where I think really the highest skills, the gifts of
0: politics show through. Uh, I think most Americans know that, well, I don't want to say most Americans, that's probably not true, but people who are interested in American history certainly know the names Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster. We should probably, though, sketch out a little bit about each of these individuals because they were, they were important Hugely important and influential figures at that time, known by many Americans as sort of the big three, if you will.
11: Yeah, they were the rock stars of their generation. And this includes most of the presidents of that era. There's a Mm -hmm. reason that presidents of the 19th century are forgettable that was by the design of the Constitution. The Constitution puts Congress in Article Mm I, and the presidency only in Article II. The president was supposed to be the executive of what Congress had decided. And so in that early era, people like Henry Clay, senator from Kentucky, Mm -hmm. Daniel Webster, senator from Massachusetts, Massachusetts, John Calhoun, senator from South South Carolina. Carolina, these were the big figures of American politics. When mothers and fathers of that generation imagined great things for their sons. They they thought you could grow up to be not Millard Fillmore or Franklin Pierce. You could grow up to be Henry Clay. <laughs> right. So my story covers the lives of these three men, but especially focuses on their overlapping time in Congress. All three entered the House of Representatives around well, about the War of 1812. Right. And they gradually advanced to the Senate and all three were in the Senate for the climactic moment of all their lives, the debate over the Compromise of 1850. So Mm -hmm. we've got this Mm 40-year period to account for. And during this time, there were shifting alliances. So part of the interest of the story is the shifting political views, Mm -hmm. the sifting out of the sections of the country, but also the personal dynamics among the three. and. They were also representatives of the three sections of the country. We think of North and South. But in those days, they thought of North, South, and West. And so Webster was from Massachusetts, clearly North. Calhoun from South Carolina, the South. And Clay from Kentucky, It was across the mountains, was the West. And so in that position, Clay often found himself the mediator between North and South. And in fact, Clay had the reputation as the great Compromiser. He Mm -hmm. was the author of the great compromises of the era: the Missouri Compromise of 1820, Mm -hmm. the compromise with South Carolina over the tariff in 1833, and the Compromise of 1850 in 1850. And in those days, and this is one of the intriguing parts of the story to me, to be known as a great compromiser was a high compliment. In our day and age, to be called a compromiser is probably meant as an insult, right, and often taken right, that right, way. Right. But that's a major lesson from this era that our democracy works when people are willing to compromise, and our democracy bogs down and threatens to fall apart when that spirit of compromise is lost.
0: Of course, uh, none of the three actually were able to achieve the sort of uh, uh, compromise that any of them imagined, uh, certainly not uh, before their passing. Why do you think that was? was Actually, it... I'm going to take issue with that a little bit. Please. Because they did achieve the compromise,
11: but the compromise didn't hold, didn't hold. after they died. Right. And that, that right. was key. And it's also an aspect of their view, but especially Henry Clay's views of politics. There was an understanding that political issues are never finally resolved. They're never resolved Once and for all. Mm -hmm. And this is what motivated the spirit of compromise. With Clay, it was a matter of can we kick the can down the road? Can we advance the Republic another 10 years, another 20 years? Clay was a firm believer that there was a genius in American politics. It was the genius of muddling through, that if given time, the
0: American political system can work this stuff out. I would imagine that in the course of, of writing this uh, narrative, uh, the, these three biographies, in a sense, that y- you must have been thinking about whether or not there are parallels today. Because, I mean, y- you even uh, end your book with how these the, this, this confrontation, this ongoing uh, confrontation between and among these three people, we're still having this conversation today. We're still fighting
11: this. We're having a conversation. now. Sometimes I say that I've been to the 19th century and I return with good news and bad news. And the good news is that there was a time when American politics were even more polarized than they are today. Believe it and, or not. And <laughs> and and we and the nation survived it. Right. That's the good news. The bad news is it took a civil war. Right. So one of the things that I observed in this and in, in the sense of drawing parallels to the present, the thing that made the sectional crisis so acute and dangerous for the republic was precisely that it was sectional right so the polarization was north against south ultimately it's geographic exactly mm-hmm. today the polarization is not that way yet as long as the separation isn't geographical then it can't really get any traction mm-hmm. in trying to say i don't want to be part of this country anymore it can be ugly but i will say this that if anything is going to get done, there's going to have to be a compromise. So there's always a temptation to push things to an extreme. But very often, there are the things that push back. And on those moments when things don't push back, that's when we get in trouble.
0: Heirs of the Founders, the epic rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American giants. H.W. Brands is the author, professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Good to see you. Thank you so much, and congratulations on the new book. It was my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at TexasChildren's.org.
0: You got to tune to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. For many years, when people were rescued from a human trafficking situation in Texas, the state had but 24 beds available to care for these survivors. Consider that. 24 beds in a state where, according to a 2016 study by the University of Texas, some 79,000 kids, we're not counting adults here, 79,000 kids were identified as victims of sex trafficking. With such limited options, sometimes survivors were actually locked up by law enforcement as a way to protect them from their pimps, therefore adding to their trauma. Well, the number of beds available in Texas just tripled, after a new place called The Refuge opened up in Central Texas this past summer. Brooke Crowder is the person behind The Refuge, and it took her about 10 years to get this together. Ms. Crowder, welcome to The Texas Standard.
12: Thank you, David.
0: So you have room for, what, 48 young women? How has the response been from the community?
12: The community is who built The Refuge. The response has been amazing. Uh, we actually formed The Refuge for DMST, which is the nonprofit that supports— What is DMST. DMST stands for Domestic Minor Sex Trafficking. So that is the nonprofit that supports the work at the Refuge Ranch where we have the 48 beds for the children that have been trafficked. This is a ranch? It's a ranch. It's a a ranch that's outside of the Austin area in Bastrop County Mm -hmm. uh, on 50 acres. And it's a beautiful setting, um, very peaceful. The the fifty acres were actually donated to us by a family in Austin.
0: So tell us how these uh, young people come into contact with the refuge. I mean, how is it that they find out that this is available? How do they? How are the connections made?
12: Through very different. Avenues, it's often through law enforcement, but it also is through our Department of Family Protective Services, CPS, who realizes now a lot of these children, because of the trauma, they're running, getting back running, and now we're identifying them as trafficking victims. We understand that now. Um, The Texas Juvenile Justice Department as well can place girls with us.
0: What happens when uh, a young person arrives at the refuge? I mean, what, what do you do?
12: The Refuge is designed to surround these children that have had such trauma with everything that they need, including a place to stay and be for as long as they need to heal.
0: As long as they need.
12: As long as they need. So we don't have a program. We have what we call a circle of care, and each child's circle of care is unique to her story, her background, and her needs, and her trauma level. And so in order to provide that holistic, very comprehensive care, we have all of our services there on site. School, medical care, dental care, great therapies that they can get involved in that help them deal with that trauma, which includes equine, art, and music. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have a place that they are housed that are small cottages where each girl has her own bedroom and bathroom and is part of a smaller unit that is like a family.
0: Wow. Um, Tell us a little bit about the ages and the sort of uh, girls that you see.
12: So the ages that will be living at the refuge are From age eleven up through age Mm -hmm. nineteen, but you said eleven. Eleven, yes. Um, Frankly, we we get calls about placing girls that are eleven and twelve years old.
0: What's What's hard to sort of fathom is the scale of the problem relative to uh, uh, what's available out there. I mean, if it takes this kind of uh, of a commitment to put together a place where survivors of human trafficking can go to be nurtured. What does that mean on that larger level for the many who don't have that opportunity?
12: Well, obviously, you've got to start somewhere. And with the need being so great, we decided we would start with a place that could be a model and that is community-based. The key to the success of the refuge in Bastrop and all other sites where we want to open and help children find healing is the key to the community involvement. These are our children. These are children that were born and raised here in the United States. They are in our communities. They could be in school, in school with your own child. It could be your child. A lot of research and due diligence went into what we've built with the hope that we can help this now be in other communities.
0: Brooke Crowder is the founder of The Refuge. You can connect with her at therefugeaustin.org. Ms. Crowder, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us on The Texas Standard.
12: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: And you were listening to The Texas Standard. Joining us once again from KERA News in North Texas, it's managing editor Eric Austin monitoring the talk of Texas uh, in lieu of Wells Dunbar, who's out today.
4: How you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm still cold, though. Yeah, uh, we all are. Mother Nature sending Arctic air across the state, freeze warnings in place. We'll talk about that a little bit later if we have time. But first, on um, on a more, uh, I guess, high-profile note, Amazon HQ2 news that Becky Fogle reported on earlier mm-hmm. in the show about right. HQ2 not coming to Texas. Instead, the New York City area and northern Virginia, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin have been in the running in the top 20 finalists. And lots of folks on Twitter, David, are sounding off on, on this news. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people are sound pretty relieved, Uh, at least folks in Texas, sound pretty relieved that it's not coming (laughs) to Texas.
0: Who wants to deal with the traffic, man? I mean, come on
4: the traffic and the housing prices that will uh, undoubtedly go up. Doug McCullough on Twitter said, I prefer Texas's policy to make Texas the most attractive place in the country to do business for every company, not bribe companies, Mm -hmm. to move Texas with taxpayer dollars. You know, David, a lot of uh, competition. I believe uh, 200-plus metro areas had submitted bids, and and lots of people were trying to offer whatever they could, rolling off the red carpet to Amazon to get them to come. Um, And let's see, Jeff J. Two on Twitter says North Texas is booming and I'm glad we lost out on Amazon HQ two. We are already growing faster than we can manage. And and down in the Austin area also uh, biology saying you know I'm, I'm glad uh, Amazon's not coming because uh, the extra traffic. And Eugene Fisher on a bright note says way to dodge that Amazon bullet, Austin breakfast tacos all around. So, you know uh, tacos on
0: Eugene. Yeah, well, tacos on Eugene. Yes, uh, the. Um, and taco sauce on me. But, but, but that's another story. But, but here's the thing that I think that, uh, uh, that's sort of lost in this. I don't know how many people remember this, um, but San Antonio's mayor, Ron Nirenberg, decided that San Antonio was not going to play this game. Mm-hmm, and he said, mm-hmm. you know, first of all, there's a, a matter of dignity here where you have to go please please come to our city and we'll give you a billion dollars right is that is that any way to run a government or to attract business right uh, yeah, and, yeah. and and now and now Jeff Bezos of Amazon is sitting pretty with loads of information on how far lots of cities are willing to go
4: exactly it gives it gives lots of companies not just Amazon but lots of companies a playbook as to what you know cities are willing to do and you know on a much smaller scale lots of corporate relocations happen all the time and lots of businesses have been moving texas uh, regardless of um incentive packages yeah. so um i think the businesses will still keep coming to texas because of the weather and because of the business climate well not this speaking weather. of the weather more cold temperatures david freeze the warnings across much of the state including austin and san antonio and possibly even the houston area tonight
0: zoics bundle up y'all alas we're out of time for the big broadcast but the news continues at texas standard dot oh, o to the r to the g In for social media editor Wells Dunbar, that's Eric Austin of KERA News. We're going to be back here for the big broadcast tomorrow. Hope you can join us.
1: Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Wooldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family.